What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. And the Baseball America College Podcast, as always, is brought to you by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out that database at rapsodo.com slash national database and see just exactly where you stack up. So we're, uh, we, as always, are, are happy to uh, be brought to you by our friends over at Rapsodo and would encourage you to check that out. Joe, uh, we are here. It is September now, uh, just barely. We're, we're coming to you on a Wednesday uh, in accordance or congruence. I don't know. We're coming to you on Wednesday because that is the day that we released our top 25 recruiting class rankings. Um, annual, uh, annually, Baseball America has ranked recruiting classes uh, since 2000. Um, so we're excited to do so again this year. And that's what Joe and I are here to talk about today. Uh, no guest, just uh, me and Joe talking a lot about uh, recruiting and incoming classes that you'll see on the field. In 2021, one of my favorite projects of the year, uh, always, uh, always an exciting time to, to look forward and to you know, try and hash things out is uh, you know, as, as we, we look towards, towards the future of, of college baseball. And that's, that's really what we're, what we're talking about when we talk about these classes. Mostly they're made up of freshmen that are going to impact their teams over the next uh, few seasons. So I don't know, I, I get really excited by the idea of, of recruiting, not necessarily something I cover day to day, you know, like some of the folks doing football or, you know, I guess even basketball recruiting. But I, I do like to see how, uh, how things come together uh, at the end of the day and, and once those classes arrive on campus. Yeah, it really, it is a fun conversation to have because it, I think for, for no matter what program you, you get behind or conference or what have you, it's, it's an opportunity to kind of dream on what could be and kind of, you, if you squint hard enough, just about any recruiting class can be the one that's going to get things turned around or keep the ball rolling or whatever it is you are looking to project upon the, uh, the program. Do you think that, that wraps Soto ad, do you think, like once we can get back to living normal lives, like do you think we can talk someone into like having you and I like, uh, you know, work out and get rap soda data and see where we stack up. Like I, I know where we'd stack up. That's not the point of this exercise. I'd just be curious <laughs> to see if they'd let us do that. Like I seriously doubt it's going to be like, Oh wow. It turns out, you know, Joe stacks up with most of our D one recruits. Like, no, that's, <laughs> like, that's not going to be the case. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't think it would be that hard to, you know, I mean, there are plenty of facilities, coaches around the country have these things like I'm sure we could find somebody that yeah. could uh could let you get in there and get on a mound and uh try hurt, and see whether myself. your fall like actually moves <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah really, really injure myself is probably what the upshot would be of that but uh yeah I had um it's just a super uh random anecdote here at the top but uh I had a I had a dream the other day and I don't 
I don't, I'm not someone who remembers my dreams very often. I just, I just don't. And I think from my, I follow my sleep stats. Um, you know, I wake up every morning and then I'll look at my, my sleep stats. I have one of those sleep trackers and I don't get a lot of REM sleep somehow. I get plenty of deep sleep. So it's not like I'm sleeping poorly per se. It's just for some reason, I don't typically get a lot of REM sleep. And from what I understand, that's the, the, uh, layer of sleep, if you will, that you typically have the really vivid dreams in. And so I don't have a lot of that. However, there was an exception to this earlier this week where I had a dream that I was on um, Twitter and I was scrolling through and there was this account that I guess I followed in this dream that was kind of like Woj at ESPN. Um, Adrian, as it turns out, his last name pronounced Warjanowski. I've been pronouncing it incorrectly all this time. I've been saying Woj Narowski. It turns out it's Warjanowski. Uh, so that's a little info there for you listeners. But it was like a Woj-like account, but it was for a very specific industry. It was this account would announce trades of animals at the zoos. So like, you know, the zoo in, in you know, San Diego could trade an animal with the zoo in Miami and then that this was apparently commonplace. And so much in the same way that people on Twitter will tweet like breaking colon and then whatever breaking news they're breaking, this guy would start all of them with animal trade colon. And then he would tell you what animals got traded to the different zoos. And this guy Wait, was like, so is this Josh Norris? Well, I thought of Josh when I, <laughs> when I had this dream, I haven't told him yet. I was going to, I wanted to, to get it out there on the podcast before I, uh, before I shared this information with them, I, I wanted the listeners to be the first ones to, to hear this story. But um, yeah, it's just like this guy, it was like his niche was just announcing trades between zoos, which I'm sure like it's not a common thing that happens. But, you know, I have heard of animals being transferred between zoos for different reasons, but I'm sure it's not like a daily occurrence. But this guy was just out there with animal trade. And then sometimes he would have a little fun with it. Like the only other offshoot of that I remember from my dream is that one time it was reptile trade instead of animal trade. So I guess reptiles were trading hands. So um, maybe this, maybe this was actually just like a parody account I was maybe dreaming about who knows, but uh, certainly th there was something like a little bit sad, I guess that the first like true vivid dream I remembered in a long time involves me thinking of this like animal trade Twitter account in the style of Woj. But I suppose that's, uh, that's, that's where I'm at. Well, you know, the, uh, we're recording this um, in late August. You're, you're listening to it now um, in early September. And so the, the MOB trade deadline has, has come and gone. But, you know, with, with that still, still to come when, when we're actually talking here in the now, like uh, got a lot of trades on the line, I guess. Uh, Gerard Dyson going from Pittsburgh to, uh, to Chicago, you know, just happened today. I suppose that was after your dream, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's potentially a busy time of year. I don't know. Maybe it's not a busy time of year. You guys will know by the time you listen to this, whether or not the trade deadline actually meant anything this year, but, uh, that is, uh, that is a prominent thing on, on your mind. I suppose that, that's what, that's what we're learning right now. Animal trade. I just couldn't get over the fact it's like all caps <laughs> animal trade. <laughs> so simple and to the point too, just, you know, could have been anything, but he went with animal trade. So I don't know. Maybe this is like a, maybe this is just like a, like a parody comedy. Twitter. I, I love a good parody Twitter account if it's done properly. So maybe, um, maybe that's what my mind is actually telling me to, to, to go with here. But, uh, but I suppose it will probably just die. Is this funny little dream I had one time and that's fine. 
Well, if you guys see on Twitter sometime Animal Trade, you'll know that Joe has, right. uh, has created that Twitter account. Until That's then, right. um, it's out there for, uh, for the rest of you to, to go and grab, I suppose. And if you like what you read, like The Onion or uh, whoever else is in the, I, I don't even know who else is in like the satire game these days, but if you like what you read, uh, you, know, you know where to find me. <laughs> well, we're here to, uh, to talk about recruiting today. Uh, before we do that, Joe, I just wanted to touch on kind of the state of college athletics, and maybe this is folly, again, considering that we're recording this a few days before you guys can listen, but, um, you know, Joe, it seems like fall sports seasons are, at least right now, progressing. Uh, the SEC just uh, released their plan for, for fall sports this week, uh, and included in that plan was a note that baseball, and I presume all other sports that this would apply to, uh, will not be playing out of, like, they, they will no longer have scrimmages against other schools this fall. I know that was a question that a lot of people were asking that didn't have, like, a hard and fast answer, but I think a lot of people were probably just presuming that those games would be canceled, uh, and now, at least in the SEC, and I assume, um, you know, that's going to be most places, uh, if even for the conferences that still are trying to play fall sports, the, the half dozen or so that remain, uh, the, the baseball scrimmages against outside opponents will not be happening this year. Not a surprise. Again, if the vast majority of college athletics is not trying to play a fall season, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to let baseball play, you know, it's, it's fall scrimmages against, you know, other teams, but uh, we now do have a little bit more clarity, at least in, in one of the the conferences that is, proceeding with fall sports. Yeah, that's just a, no matter where you fall on the spectrum of, you know, we should, fall sports should play, shouldn't play. I think one thing that everybody can kind of agree on is that there's just no reason to really push that envelope. You know, practice, you know, if you're, if your conference is moving forward, then by all means, you know, get out there and practice, but there's really no reason to, you know, tempt fate and to create, uh, you know, difficult logistical hurdles for, for those fall scrimmage games as much as, Coaches like them as kind of a barometer of where your team is and to give those players an opportunity to be in a little bit of a competitive setting. It's just not, given everything going on this fall, those, that was really probably an easy decision to lock those off, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, certainly probably some cost savings, not much, but probably some cost savings uh, that in these, these uncertain times, um, you know, uh, easy to move on from those. So, you know, we're still trying to get a feel for what fall ball is going to look like moving forward. That's one of the things Joe and I are working on right now, uh, in fact. But, you know, that, that is one piece of the puzzle that we're, we're starting to get a little more certainty on. So, uh, you know, if you enjoyed some of these games, I'm sure they'll come back eventually. You know, the SEC or the, the, uh, the, the, the Georgia-Florida showdown in Jacksonville last year was really cool. Uh, Oklahoma traveling to Arkansas and Arkansas packing a whole bunch of fans uh, into bomb for that game uh, was really cool. You've seen a lot of things like that kind of various places around the country. Uh, So hopefully we can see more of those soon, just not this year. But I I do think since that legislation was enacted and they allowed those games to happen in the fall, uh, we've seen just how worthwhile they can be for players and, and for programs. And you know, how much fun they can be for fans as well if, uh, if schools want to engage them in, 
in certain ways. Not every program like wants to do that. Some of them want them to be more low key. Uh, but if you want to make it kind of a deal, uh, you know, certain places have shown that, that you can be successful doing that. All right, so with that, we're gonna throw it to uh, a word from our sponsors, MyBookie. All right, Joe, we've uh, we hit on the news. There's there's some more news around there and within college sports. Uh, we'll we'll figure that all out later. The Big Ten will or won't play football starting on Thanksgiving or January, whatever. Like they'll sort that out. We'll maybe address it then if if it is going to affect baseball or not. Um, the the fall sports situation continues uh, to be confusing. Um, and I think we'll be right up until the time that they actually start playing or everyone agrees that they're canceling the season. So we'll address it as we need to. But I think right now we can, uh, we can focus on what we're here to talk about, and that is these recruiting rankings. Uh, they were released today, like I mentioned already. Your number one ranked recruiting class is Miami. This is very notable in that it is, um, you know, Miami being ranked number one for the first time in program history, which is a little bit of a surprise, just given what Miami is. Again, we've been doing these since 2000. Um, you know, so that just misses, you know, the kind of classes that crafted the last Miami national championships. Uh, but, you know, it's still Miami. They've still produced some pretty significant uh, talent in the 21st century and, you know, really done a lot. Um, so that it's notable from that standpoint, it's also notable from the standpoint that it's not an SEC team being ranked number one. It's the first time since Stanford had the number one class in 2010 that it is not an SEC team with the number one class. So that in itself, pretty incredible that the SEC went on that kind of run. Um, I, I really think that this Miami class is very exciting when, when you look at it with uh, some of the pitchers they've brought in, uh, especially at the uh, at the top end here, uh, you're talking about Alejandro Rosario, um, you're talking about uh, Victor Medeiros, th those two guys, both right-handers, you know, from Miami, staying local. Those two were both ranked within the top 100, as was shortstop Yuhandi Morales, uh, top 100 of the BA 500, which again ranks all draft-eligible players. Uh, so those guys, you know, a big there's a lot of hype around them. They could have gone to pro ball, could have signed for a lot of money. Instead, they're, they're headed to the U. And, uh, you know, it, it's an exciting time for, for the Canes, uh, you know, as uh, they, they kind of, you know, work to get back to the World Series after, you know, a couple down seasons. Everyone was very excited about what they could be in 2020. And, of course, 19, they got back to, to the postseason. But this now you know, could be the next group that, that really uh, has them on a national stage. Yeah, I'm really excited to see this group get on campus and, and see what Miami ends up being, because I think it could be a situation where this could be the right mix for Miami. They've had kind of the same group of guys the last several years, and, and we thought maybe that group would reach its peak in 2020. And of course we never got to see that. So now you've got, you've lost some of those pieces notably on the mound, but you still have a pretty good group of veterans there led by, you know, a guy like Alex Trowell, for example, really productive guy for, for a long time. And then you, you kind of 
inject these young kids into the mix. And, and I wonder if that might just be the right combination there, that you've got a, a combination of some guys who've been around a while who feel like maybe they were cheated out of their best opportunity to win a national title. And they're, you know, they thought maybe, hey, one more year of this, then I go off into pro ball. And then a, maybe a five-year draft took that off the table, or a five-round draft took that off the table. And so maybe it's a really motivated veteran group combined with, you know, a young, talented group that's going to be eager to make their mark early on and is going to get their opportunity to do that. That might just be the right combination there. Now, I think there are other programs that probably have something similar going on because that I don't think that dynamic is unique to Miami of a bunch of guys back on campus that maybe thought in a normal draft they would be in pro ball by now. Uh, combined with talented recruiting classes because, oh, by the way, the draft didn't take as many incoming freshmen as we thought. So that's, that dynamic is not going to be unique. However, I think what will be unique is a team with a bunch of guys who are ready to compete for a national title in 2020 combined with, you know, by these rankings anyway, the most talented group of freshmen getting to campus this year. And I think that could make make for a really exciting mix there. But it it's before we move on with the specific teams, I was actually going to ask you, because this I think dovetails into a conversation that, that I've thought about, which is that, you know, you go back, you've been doing retrospectives and, and re-ranking recruiting classes. And, and I wonder if, if you were really putting the cart before the horse here, but I, I just think about this recruiting class might be one that is going to be really hard to re-rank, you know, five years down the road or what have you, just because I think we're going to have a lot of situations where sure we'll have some standouts in certain places, but there's going to be a lot of freshmen that, you know, thought they were going to play in their first year that probably aren't going to play to the same extent they thought. And then, you know, maybe we'll have some, some of these classes might really not shine until years two and three in particular. I think it's going to make for an interesting little exercise for you a few years down the road to try to parse through a bunch of classes where, Hey, these guys made a bigger impact early, but on the other hand, these guys were some late bloomers uh, or maybe we just didn't get opportunities until late and then shine maybe a little brighter late. Um, there's always some of that. I get that. But I think the, the combination of factors now is going to make it toward this is a, a particularly big challenge when we look at this group of recruits specifically. You know, I hadn't thought of that yet, Joe. And, you know, typically I'm the one that I, I, I'm used to this year being the one that's like looking a little further ahead than the person I'm talking to and being like, well, what about this? And then I'm being like, I had not thought of that and now you're giving me a headache. And so now I get that, that role reverse. Um, yeah, it, it might be tricky. Uh, it, it probably will be tricky. I was already kind of just struggling with the idea of, you know, we do these retrospectives after a senior class has graduated uh, with the idea that oh, there, you, you talk to some coaches and they tell you the best time to rank a recruiting class is after, you know, you know, four years later when you can see what they've actually done on the field. And like, I hear that and I get that. That's like kind of just a different exercise than ranking them when they show up, uh, but it's a worthy exercise. And so we do it. And I've just been wondering this year, like, do I do that for the, what is it? I guess the, for, the, for the 16 class. Or do we hold off for a year because, you know, the seniors have been allotted this extra, extra year. And I mean, the reality is that, you know, really you could probably do it after three years because the, the bulk of the impact happens, you know, at least at the top of the rankings, it, it's, 
guys that are getting drafted after their junior year. Um, so we could probably do it this year, but then like, what about next year? Like, you know, is, are, are we going to find that more juniors have stayed than, or, or more seniors have stayed next year than we saw this year and all, all the rest of that. And so, you know, I think we're probably going to delay for a year. Um, we had a bigger retrospective of the, the best classes since we've been doing the rankings in the magazine. Um, and that may be my retrospective for the year, but it's, uh, you're mentioning a good point here with the this class trying to see it four years down the line how many of these guys have transferred um you know was even for the guys that stayed was their impact blunted because for the first year they just found it harder to get out on the field um that that is going to be going to be tricky uh to evaluate um but you know every one of those retrospectives right now is is going to be a little tricky because you know, the, everyone has this extra year of eligibility. And so, you know, how, will there be some classes that, that maybe see more guys take advantage of that? And then, you know, they kind of move up the rankings because they have this extra year, whereas other guys like got out after three years and, you know, yeah, they had really big impacts, but they, they were there for less time. So, yeah. And, and, this is like very low on the list of things that have been impacted by the the decision to to give this extra eligibility, uh, but it is something, you know, it, it's somewhat emblematic of, or, or the, the byproduct, I guess, of of the the, the discussions that, that have been had. Like, um, you know, what do you do with these extra players? How do you keep everyone happy? And uh, you know, it, the the rosters for this year are uncapped. Um, but do you, just because you can have all these players around, do you want to have them all around? Because then that creates, um, you know, some more difficult situations to manage just because you have more mouths to feed. So all of that feeds into this and, uh, yeah, it's, it's tricky. And, uh, I have not thought that through yet. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years. Yeah. I mean, if it, uh, you know, if, if the exercise is not going to be easy, it might as well be interesting. And I think, um, that it will be interesting to look back on and see how this all shakes out. Because I think the one thing we can all agree is that we don't have any idea how it'll end up shaking out. So we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, moving forward kind of in the, the discussion about the rankings themselves. And um, I will let you guide a little bit here, but one of the things when I look at these rankings, it stands out to me first is you've got Arizona at number four. Um, and that feels, I mean, you'll tell me, but that feels like the best they've done in a while. Also, it's a little bit of a jump from where they were pre-draft. I think you had them eight in the pre-draft update. So I know some of that is just the mechanics of some of the teams in front of them losing guys. I'm sure that's a part of it. But tell us a little bit about the Arizona group because that, like I said, that, that stood out to me as, you know, they, they've always recruited pretty well, but this feels a little bit out of step in a good way with what they've done of late. Yeah, not only of late, it's actually the best they've ever done. Uh, they've had, since Jay Johnson arrived, they've had now five straight recruiting classes. Uh, that first year when he got hired in 15, um, they were not ranked that year. But that's also the hardest class for any incoming coach because all you can basically do at that point is add like a junior college player or two or maybe somebody who – um, got cut loose late 
or decommitted late due to another coaching change, uh, you know, maybe you can find a high schooler like that, but it, it's really hard. basically the class you inherit is that class your first year. So since Jay has had any opportunity to influence his own recruiting class, they've been ranked. Uh, but only one of those classes was a top 10 class. And now this one is a top five class. And the what I find to be most interesting about that is, yeah, you mentioned going into the draft, they were ranked eighth. And on the first night of the draft, Nick York got picked by the Red Sox. It was a surprise pick. He was ranked by us as a top 100 player, but not expected to be a first round um, pick. Uh, and, you know, I think if you look at other rating services that, you know, we, we try and be a reflection of what we hear in the industry. Some other rating services uh, are more skewed to what they are evaluating themselves. And, you know, so if you look at, um, you know, if you look at other draft boards around the internet, I don't know precisely where he was ranked, but I don't think anyone had him ranked as a top 50 player. Uh, so the Red Sox made, made a surprising pick. That was a player that I, my understanding was he was very committed to Arizona. Uh, but, you know, the Red Sox taking him in the first round changed their mind. And so when that happened, I was looking at Arizona's class and I was like, well, that might not be good. Like the, this, this doesn't seem like it's going to go in a good direction. Uh, but that was, that was it for them. They, they held on to everyone else. Um, and so that means that Chase Davis, who, you know, was another top 100 player. He's an outfielder. He's, he's going to Tucson. They got Daniel Susak, who they're really, really excited about. Um, he's probably going to step right in as the catcher. He's the younger brother of Andrew Susak, who played for Nate Yeski at Oregon State. Uh, so there's a family relationship there that, that they're, you know, the, the Arizona coaching staff now with, with Yeski as, as pitching coach that they're familiar with and obviously very good bloodlines since Andrew went on to, to play in the big leagues and, and Daniel is a, is a really good player in his own right. Um, you know, TJ Nichols is a, is a big time arm that they're getting. Chase Silseth is a um, junior college transfer who can, can come in and, and make an impact. And you know, so it's a, it's a good, deep class uh, that really has some, some impact guys. I, I would be highlighting Davis and, and Susak, especially on the, the position player side, although I don't want to shortchange Jacob Berry. And then TJ Nichols has two-way potential, probably a little more on the mound. Uh, but I'm going to be very interested to see what they do with him. I think he's got some projection left as well. So uh, see, see what kind of development he's able to put in, uh, you know, Chase Davis learning from, uh, Jay Johnson in terms of hitting is, is going to be a lot of fun to see. He's a left-handed hitter. He's, he's a big guy. Um, I love watching him swing the bat. It, that that's going to be, uh, you know, a, a fun, fun player to see. And I, I think the, uh, you know, you look at Arizona state and you see all those guys getting drafted this year and it was like okay they you know they have a lot of room for new players to come in and make an impact uh but so does arizona you know austin wells is gone Matthew dyer is gone um you know if you roll the clock back a year they lost quintana and cannon um you know so there there's openings there just like there are um you know in tempe and so these guys are, are really going to have an opportunity to come in and make an impact. And 
uh, you know, I, I think they can help Arizona take that next step. Uh, that you know, they've they've been bubble out the last two NCAA tournaments. Um, we don't know how this year was gonna gonna go in in that regard. Uh, but I, I think that this group is a group that, that really can help Arizona take the next step forward towards getting back to Omaha like they did in 2016 when they played for the national title. One of the other, as I scroll like a little bit further down, one of the teams that I stopped on too is, is Stanford. And, and that's certainly, I think, a site for sore eyes on the farm because I, you know, we didn't see how 2020 played out, but it, it felt a little like this was just going to be a year where Stanford maybe bottomed down. And to be fair to Stanford, it was coming off of a a run of years when they were excellent. And, you know, they they didn't have any trips to the CWS to show for it, but they were just a really, really excellent team for a number of years. And sometimes you just have those, um, those down years. And it looked like 2020 was, was, was going to be that. And a a big part of it was there just wasn't a lot of, just didn't seem to my eye, at least in the 16 games we saw and given track record that there were a ton of game-changing talents. There were individual talents here. I mean, Tim Tawa obviously is a, is a really talented guy. Brock Jones, a really good athlete. You know, a pitcher like Alex Williams, uh, he was looking like he would be a game-changing guy. But for the most part, you know, it was some guys who had been around a while but really necessarily hadn't necessarily made big impacts and a lot of unproven. Uh, so this looks like an opportunity. And maybe in 2021, it doesn't necessarily start to turn around right away. We'll have to see. But you know, there, there have been a number of transfers out of Stanford. Christian Molfetta is, is going to Michigan. Uh, Brandon Dieter, a really talented guy at New Mexico State. Uh, Nick Orr has transferred out, and I'm sure I'm missing a guy or two here. But uh, there has been some turnover there among some of the guys you would have thought would have been a part of the core that kind of moves forward at Stanford. But um, So I, I think it will be an interesting team to watch in 2021 just how quickly um, – those guys who are coming in now are ready to move into big roles because the opportunities I think are going to be there. So I'll let you tell me how ready you think this group is to kind of, if Stanford's not a national seed, I think that is, you know, that's a little bit of a goal, a little bit too rich, but if Stanford's going to be competitive within the PAC 12, how ready that group is to be a part of that. Yeah. I think a part of what we're going to see from Stanford is just going to be like, they're really young last year. They had, a big class come in last year because they had a lot of guys exit via the draft. And so there were definitely going to be open spots and um, maybe those guys weren't ready for it is what we were seeing. Uh, Maybe they would have grown into it, but between that group, which was 19th and then this, this year, which is number seven, first top 10 class uh, for David Esker at Stanford, since he took over, I think they, really injected a lot of talent over the last two years. And so I think how competitive they're going to be in 21, probably like, yes, it's going to rely on this class in, in, in part, but I think maybe the bigger thing is going to be what kind of development do we see from last year's class uh, in, in terms of, you know, getting ready to play this, this year has some impact. Um, it, it has some, some big time players, which they need. It starts with Drew Bowser who uh, was a top 100 uh, player in the 500. Um, he, uh, he maybe profiles better at third base. He's been a shortstop. I don't know precisely where he's going to end up for Stanford, but probably somewhere on the left side of their infield. Um, big time power. He, uh, he's definitely, he, he looks like a third baseman. If he'd been drafted this year, he probably would have gone out as a third baseman. Um, but that's not to say that he couldn't be their shortstop. 
and especially with Dieter gone, um, you know, just a little bit less competition. But, you know, at the same time, if Stanford's going to prioritize defense, maybe they um, put him at third base. And, you know, Stanford is a traditional pitching and defense kind of team. So we'll see where he ends up. Tommy Troy um, basically can play anywhere. Super versatile, big-time athlete, big-time speed. Uh, a lot of contact. I, I think that's a guy that plays at the top of the order pretty quickly for Stanford. Uh, so I, I, I they, they also got Eddie Park, who has a similar kind of top of the order skill set. So if those two guys can come in and, and add some speed, add some on-base skills to that lineup, you can get Bowser going in the middle of the lineup. I think those are some impactful um, – you know, bats that, that Stanford can add. And then on the pitching side, uh, they, uh, they brought in the Bruno twins from South Florida. Ryan, who is left-handed, is kind of the, the bigger deal. He was the, the bigger, bigger prospect in the draft and, you know, probably the one that's a little more ready to go. That, that's part of the reason why he was ranked higher in addition to being left-handed. Um, the raw tools are all there. They need to refine the command a little bit, but uh, you know, big time stuff coming in there. And then Jaden is uh, is a right hander. Um, he, I think, is a little more like the traditional Stanford right hander. At least you know the last few years, the Alex Williams, the Brendan Beck kind of guy. Um, you know, so maybe he plays quickly as well. But the reports over the summer from when they were playing. Were, were better on Ryan, uh, again, as, as they had been throughout their, their prep careers. So, um, you know, that's uh, – they have some other guys. Joseph Dixon has two-way potential, maybe a little better on the mound. Brant Pacer, um, you know, very, very good on, on the mound as well. So it's, uh, it's a smaller group than what they had last year, but the impact is definitely there. Uh, in this year's class. And so I think if you combine these two and the, the 2019s are able to, you know, improve a little bit over the last year from what the last time we saw them in March, I, I think Stanford really can make a quick bounce back. I, I don't think they have to be down. Uh, I don't know that they would have stayed as down as what we were seeing. They would have to think that they would have improved a bit over the course of the season. Uh, but I, I do like generally what Stanford has in 21 and then i think you know 2022 you can start seeing them back at competing at the the very top of the pac 12 like we did the last few years so one more note on, on the top 10 and then i'll just kind of open it to you for any teams i, I didn't touch on in the, in the top 10 there that, that you'd like to talk about but one other thing in the top 10 is we talked about them some so i won't linger too much on this because we, we did a whole podcast frankly on it with danny hall but georgia tech coming in at number 10 just kind of a continuation of the momentum they have in that program. And, and I think there's an opportunity and look, I'll qualify this before I say it, because I want to be clear about the qualification here is they still have to do it. This is a team that hasn't been out of a regional since 2006, which is the last time they got to Omaha. So this is still a program that has a lot to prove in terms of having success the postseason in the, in the postseason. However, that said, you know, it, I guess the other qualifier is also that Georgia Tech never really truly bottomed out. They never had a year where they finished last in, in the ACC or, you know, anything like that. But the reality of the situation was this was a program at the end of the 2018 season that had missed out on regionals in three out of four years. And, you know, the, the, the talent had, had certainly dropped off from not just where Georgia Tech was at its peak, but even 
a few years before that. You know, so it, you were you were looking at a situation where you know it seemed like you know every year Georgia Tech was was kind of lingering around the bubble at best, and then you know there were a couple of years where they weren't really necessarily in the mix at all. And it was easy to look at a situation where you've got a coach in Danny Hall who was in his 60s and think that you know maybe this is kind of the end of this run and Georgia Tech needs a hard reset as a program. And I think it, it would have been reasonable to to wonder if that's maybe what was on the horizon for this program. And so through that lens, I think it's interesting to watch this program and, and think about the fact that what is on the table with the way they were, what they've already done by hosting and being a national seed in 2019, they're off to a good start in 2020, recruiting at the level they're recruiting now. Um, you know, it could be a situation where we start to witness a turnaround that, you know, I, I'd love to have the time and the resource to really be able to dive deep on something like this because I think it might be a really unique turnaround in the sport. You know, a program that has had a longtime head coach that fell off a little bit and then doesn't just bounce back and, and start getting back into the postseason more often, but really bounces back and becomes a national title level team. And again, they still have to do it to prove they can be that. You know, maybe this is a flash in the pan. You know, maybe they'll still struggle to get out of regionals. Who knows? But certainly it's not a talent issue given the way they're recruiting and what we've already seen on the field. And so I just, I think it's really fascinating. I don't want us to lose sight of how unique this could be. If they have a situation where Georgia Tech gets back to Omaha and starts competing for a national title, you know, 15 years plus after the last time they were really doing so, all kind of under the same head coach um, with new assistant coaches. And I think that's been key. That's a big part of this, but um, that has an opportunity to be something really unique in college baseball. And again, Maybe there's an example out there that I'm just glossing over a little bit. I think there have been micro examples, maybe Jim Morris at the end of his tenure with Miami where they were sliding and they got back to Omaha back-to-back years with the Zach Collins teams, but then they slid again the last couple of years he was there. So that one's not even quite right. But I just think it's a unique thing that we have a chance to witness here. And, you know, if Georgia Tech can pull it off, I think it's going to be a really um, interesting story and something that I don't think – anybody would have necessarily predicted the end of that 2018 season when they'd missed out on the postseason for the, for the third time in, in four years. No, I, I think that's, that's right. Uh, I'm trying to, I, I should be like answering this Georgia tech question. And I'm now trying to think of other examples. If they're able to pull this off, I think you're right. Like you have some micro examples out there, like the Miami thing did, did pop up, but of course it didn't last necessarily North Carolina a little similar, but they were not down anywhere near as wrong, as long uh, as as Georgia Tech was. Uh, I don't know what it is about the ACC that's that's producing these examples. I can't really think of any outside the ACC. Oh, you know, you know who it is. We just talked about them at Stanford. <laughs> you know, the the they they didn't get back to Omaha, uh, but if you look at the last season of Marquess, like it's significantly better than where they had been like six years before and the foundation that was laid for Esker to um, kind of take off and have those couple national seeds had been laid to an extent. Um, I mean, you could argue whether they needed to change coaches to, to truly get there or not, but maybe, maybe that's your best one is, is Stanford. But I, I, I do think even that isn't, you know, Georgia Tech has a chance to do something more than even what Stanford showed. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's probably the 
at least in recent years, that's the closest, closest comparison for sure. Yeah. If you guys can think of like older school examples, I'm interested. Joe's interested. Uh, but this Georgia Tech class, uh, it starts with Kevin Parada, who, if we had Carlos Colazzo, our draft expert on to talk about, like would probably just talk for the next like 20 minutes about how great Kevin Parada can be. Um, he's a, He's, he's the highest ranked position player in the in the class not to get drafted, not to sign. Um, so that's a really, really strong place to start. Uh, stop me if you've heard this before, Joe, but Georgia Tech might have another All-American catcher. So, you know, they, they, my understanding is that he really was into the catcher you idea that they've kind of got going there. Um, you know, what, what Joey Bart, Jason Veritek, Matt Wieters, uh, even McCann to a certain extent, um, maybe not quite that level, but you know, he wants to be one of those premium, like top 10 pick kind of guys coming from Georgia Tech and, and believes that uh, they're going to be able to help him get there. And you know, there, are, there are questions from pro scouts right now about his catching ability. Um, there are not so much questions about his bat. So we'll see like, what they can do to help him develop defensively. But I think right now he's plenty good enough to catch for Georgia Tech. Uh, it, it's more of a question of do you think he's a big league catcher? And, you know, we'll see where that goes. Uh, he can certainly work to develop that. But just from a purely Georgia Tech perspective, this guy has the chance to be an absolute monster for them. Um, so that's a, that's a big-time addition. They're very excited, and they should be, about Jake DeLeo, uh, who's a late bloomer. But some really impressive strides over the last couple of years really has a ton of tools, a ton of upside coming from the Northeast. There's, there's a lot to tap into there. And uh, the, the third of the trio that, that really makes this class is Marquise Grissom Jr. You remember, may remember his father as an all-star outfielder, played for the Braves among other, other teams. Um, Jr. is, there's a lot of projection on him still. Um, but if you look at it, the tools are all there. The tools are all there, not only for him to take a jump. And, you know, if you hear his fastball, which typically is 88 to 92, you might be wondering, like, why are we making a big deal of him? Um, but he's plenty good with that fastball and his changeup right now to be successful for Georgia Tech. And then if he does find the more velocity whether that comes from getting stronger or just like working to get the velocity on uh, the various programs you can work at that right now. Um, he has a chance to really take a big step forward. But again, I, if he, if he just is the pitcher he is right now for Georgia tech, uh, he can be a very successful pitcher for them. So we'll see where he goes in terms of pro ball as a prospect. I think that he will develop well, at Georgia Tech and, and get drafted pretty well in a, in a few years. But even if that doesn't happen, uh, e even if he is who he is, what he is right now is, is a pitcher that can have success for them. I really like some of the other athletic um, position players they're bringing in. Hank Thomas, John Moran are both big guys who can play outfield or, you know, first base, big time power bats. Um, and they have some other, you know, really experienced hitters. Uh, it's much better as a class on the position player side. Um, 
and then th than it is on, on the the pitch inside that that's not to say that they don't have good pitchers but it, it they're just bringing in many more position players than they are pitchers uh this year and then throw in there as a wild card uh nate mccollum who's a really athletic outfielder so athletic that he's also a three-star wide receiver and my understanding is that uh he may contribute pretty quickly over on the football field and if that happens you know who knows how much baseball he'll end up playing uh but if he does play baseball for georgia tech as is currently the plan um he has he, he has a chance to be special if he chooses to dedicate himself on on the diamond if he chooses football um you know he, he has a chance to be very good for them over there as well so kind of uncertain what to expect from him but it's a it's another exciting player that they're bringing in. So I guess uh, you know because we could I, I suppose you and I could probably go one by one here, but I don't think they necessarily want <laughs> eight nine hour podcasts. Um, so I guess what I'll do is is before we kind of move on to some I have some other scattered thoughts, but there's a lot of blue blood in this top ten, which is not unexpected. But you know LSU, Vanderbilt, Florida. Uh, South Carolina, I suppose, is, is new for, for recent years, um, but Texas, Arkansas. Is there anybody in that top 10 you wanted to, to shout out before we move on to kind of some scattered thoughts? Because I don't want to give anybody a short shrift here if there was something you wanted to hit on. I did want to mention Texas. If you've been following our recruiting rankings since we um, debuted the 2020 rankings on signing day of last year, uh, Texas has been number one. They were number one on signing day. They were number one in the update that I did before the draft. They are not number one anymore. They're down to um, number eight. And they got hit pretty hard in the draft. Uh, they had Jared Kelly, who was this year's Gatorade Player of the Year, who on signing day was the number one ranked high school player. Didn't go into the draft quite that high. Was still a very high, um, highly ranked player. Uh, they lost him, they lost a few other players. Um, I believe they lost four, but they still end up with a, a, a premium class here, just maybe not quite as good. Tanner Witt is now your bell cow, your bell bevo. I guess it's bevo. Bevo's not a cow. I'm not, I'm not really in tune on whether bulls can be uh, bell cows. But anyway, Tanner Witt, your, your top-ranked player in the class. And he's a guy that had a lot of draft chatter around him. There's a lot of reason to like him. He's a two-way guy. I think you'll see him pitch more for Texas, but he could also be Texas's starting third baseman next year. And, you know, David Pierce is very into the idea of two-way players. He'll give pretty much anyone the chance to be a two-way player if they have that experience. Uh, but typically, after you get the chance, they kind of figure out where you fit best. Tanner Witt, though, might be a legitimate true two-way guy. I'll be very interested to see how they use him. He's young for the class, which is part of the reason why he had some of that draft buzz. So still developing a lot of potential uh, with him. They, uh, they have some exciting arms, Travis Steele, LeBaron Johnson, who they picked up late, had been a Florida commit, um, Aaron Nixon, Lucas Gordon, um, Ivan Melendez is a, a, a powerful junior college uh, transfer who, who's going to add some impact to that lineup right away. So I, uh, I like what Texas has still not quite as good as what it could have been, obviously, if, if everything had broken just right. And as I've mentioned before, maybe I haven't mentioned it on the podcast and I've only written it, but 
after the first round of the draft ended, I was looking at it and I was like, this might be like Texas might actually pull this off. It might be really special. Like they might have like this killer recruiting class coming in. And uh, then the second round of the draft happened and, and it kind of all fell apart, but they still have a really good group coming to Austin. Just not quite what you saw on signing day. Yeah. And that, you know, that kind of stuff happens and we, we talk all the time about how it's, it's just such a tough needle to thread to, to find the right guys. Uh, you're not going too hard on guys who, you know, are not likely to end up on campus, but you also don't want to, you know, you also don't want to try to hit a bunch of, bunch of singles instead of swinging for a home run every so often, or, or to use a, a different analogy I like is that, you know, sometimes four quarters will work, but sometimes you don't need four quarters, you need a dollar. And um, that's, that's baseball recruiting kind of in a, in a nutshell there. So I had a couple other thoughts here. This, I guess, maybe would be a little more disorganized part of it. But um, one thing that, that I took note of was, was some teams that, um, for one, that are, are on this ranking, which suggests they have very talented recruiting classes, but that they might not necessarily need them right away. So a team that comes to mind for me in that way is TCU at 13, which, you know, based on what they have coming back, I mean, they're going to run basically a team of, really talented 24 year olds out there. They have a lot of really old guys that roster and and old in a good way because they're productive and talented and have been around a long time. I think that's a team that, you know, is just going to be really tough to beat because they're going to be mature and and older and and they're going to be physical. And now you're adding that recruiting class on top of it. So that's a team that 13th ranked recruiting class here and and may not really need a whole lot of it because, Oh, by the way, they also had a really good recruiting class a better recruiting class last year. And a lot of those guys really didn't get much of a chance to show what, uh, what they were made of early on. One of the other things I noticed too is, or made note of is with a team like Arizona state, for example, at 23, and there are a couple of examples here throughout the rankings, but Arizona state stands out for me. You might look at 23 and, and don't get me wrong, getting ranked in the top 25 in the recruiting classes is a, is a feat in and of itself, but you might look at that and go, well, they, you know, they need a lot of help because we saw how many guys got drafted. I think it's important to remember that, you know, we are also in an off season of the most active transfer market that we've ever had. And, and Arizona state is uniquely positioned where you add that 23 rank, 23rd ranked recruiting class on top of a still pretty talented team. And then you add in a guy like Connor Davis, a, 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 a power bat from Auburn, who's been really productive for a long time. And then Albert major from Xavier, who is, you know, one of really the more intriguing talents in college baseball that really feels like he hasn't quite put it all together in a spring season yet. And, and perhaps that happens in Tempe. So it's also important to remember that, you know, there is help coming in, in a lot of these cases for these teams from places that aren't just from the recruiting class. And I think Arizona state is, is probably at least in my eyes, perhaps the biggest example of, of this group anyway. Yeah. I think that's a, a very, very, very important thing to note is that, our recruiting rankings factor in high school players and junior college transfers. Four-year transfers do not count. Uh, this is maybe the last year where that's true. Uh, if they remove the, uh, if they grant the one-year waiver or the the one-time transfer waiver uh, in. NCAA transfer reform legislation, if, if that is granted in, in January, as has been expected, uh, the rankings will probably have to change to account for transfers. But right now, with 
some transfers having to sit out for a year, some transfers getting immediately eligible. Uh, you know, this year it seems like more players are getting immediate eligibility than years prior, uh, but they still have to go through the paperwork. You know, it still is kind of this weird process that some of them get eligible, some of them don't. Um, I, we have we have excluded them, but yes, that is Arizona State. I would know. I would also say, you know, we talked about how good Georgia Tech was. You know, when Danny Hall was on the podcast, he was very excited about his three transfers that are coming in. So, you know, everything I said about Georgia Tech, and then remember what Danny said about the the three transfers he has. Uh, you know, now I believe one is still waiting for his waiver. Not positive about that. Uh, again, th- this is why we don't do it because the waivers come in at various times and. Uh, they aren't true free agents or any like they're they're not up for grabs the way that the junior college players are. But that may be changing soon. But yes, I, I would say that Arizona State, those are those are two notable transfers, two guys they're excited about. Uh, and then the other thing is Arizona State ranked higher going into the draft. They lost a couple guys, um, but you know I think they're still very happy with where their class is. And then you know the the other thing is. A couple of the guys that are no longer in the Arizona State recruiting class that were prior to the draft were pitchers. And while they lost a lot of players this year, they're mostly position players. That pitching staff, we've talked about it before, like how much I believe that Arizona State, um, you know, still has talent on the mound and that they'll probably figure it out offensively. So, you know, the fact that they lost a couple arms is not the biggest deal in the here and now. Um, you know, what that means two years from now, I, I don't know. But they can they can work that out later. Uh, and that, that, I think, opens up this, a second broader point, Joe, which is that, um, you know, some of these classes lost players because they, you know, got drafted. But they also lost players because they, somebody made a decision. Some, maybe it was the player, maybe it was the coach, whatever, uh, that, you know, it, you look around and you say, like, there aren't going to be as many innings or at-bats as we thought there were going to be. Maybe you need to look somewhere else, or, or maybe I want to look somewhere else. And, you know, so you look at it, and you know, Florida, I think, only brought in 10 players this year, which is a very low number for the Gators. Uh, I know some schools here 10 and they're like, wow, that's a big recruiting class. Well, at Florida, it's not. Um, but remember they got Mason Leftwich back. They got basically the entire lineup back. So, you know, they're looking at it and, you know, it's their recruiting ranking, you know, going into the draft, like they were fully competing for the number one spot. And now they're fifth, which is excellent. Although for Florida, like that's, that they have they've had a top five class for i think like eight straight years now um so this is kind of like the bare minimum there but they uh the 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 point is that some of their recruiting was done just by getting their own players back and they're not unique in that by any stretch so the, the draft being so short really affected this in a lot of different ways uh, it really magni- like magnified classes that lost multiple players. Um, you saw UCLA and Texas both take significant drops um, after losing four players that were drafted. 
mentioned Arizona State lost a couple, and they took a pretty heavy drop. So if you lost players, it really got magnified this year. Uh, but it also meant that you know if you return players on your current team that you maybe weren't really expecting coming back, like that could also affect your recruiting class because then maybe you didn't need uh, or you didn't have the innings or, or at-bats for the players, and, and that led to them going and looking elsewhere. You alluded a little bit there to uh, you know UCLA losing some losing some players which hurt their standing a little bit and, and you listed here in the, the list you you uh, provided me gave me a sneak peek of the top 25 and then some you so you, you have teams four teams that are listed as, as just missed and readers will be able to to read a more expanded list of these um after the fact Teddy's going to put out a post along those lines so you, look for that able, next week yes so you will see an expanded list but these as a little teaser are four of them that he listed i think i i mentioned these and this is kind of my my, my thought to wrap all this up is that each of these four are kind of fascinating to me. So, and I'll give you quick reasons why here. So Virginia is one. And I think that one's fascinating because I think that's just kind of the mechanics of recruiting where they've really been killing it. And they're obviously loaded for the 2021 season. We think very highly of them. And I so I quickly want to note here that uh, Nate Savino who enrolled early was initially supposed to be in this class. And so if you felt like, adding Nate Savino and even mentally, which again, I would not encourage you to do, but if that Nate Savino was initially supposed to be in this class, if you put him back in this class, class immediately ranked potentially top 10. So there you go. So um, yes, yeah, so Nate Savino already being factored in, um, but it, it's just long story short, it's, it's one of those situations where they've kind of already are pretty set. And I'm sure there are individual pieces they like in this class who will play big roles, but I think this is largely just kind of the mechanics of, you know, what their, their team makeup is right now that they, they weren't uh, in a position where they had to bring in one of these, these big time classes to kind of get things turned around because they, they like where they're at. UCLA, of course, you mentioned losing some guys. I think they're in a little bit of a similar place though, where they have a lot of certainty and all you need to do is look at our list of the 2020 top college 2021 draft prospects and look how many UCLA players are in the top 100 to know that they feel pretty good about where they're at. And that's a program that brings in smaller classes just kind of as a rule. So there's also that component. Uh, Alabama is one of the other teams and uh, they continue to recruit well under Brad Bohannon. But this is the thing we've talked about time and time again, that being just outside the top 25 puts them 11th by my count in the SEC and that's, uh, that, that's life in the SEC. So that's, um, you know, obviously great strides we saw from Bama in a small sample in 2020. So obviously they, they are making strides, but I think this kind of goes to show that it, it does take some time there. And the last one is, is Washington, which is fascinating just because um, for, for a couple of reasons. One, it's just not a name necessarily that, that you would associate in this neighborhood of recruiting. But also there, there is kind of an opportunity, I think, in the Pac-12. Uh, you know, Washington is kind of perpetually that – almost quite literally middle ground program in the Pac-12 where they're, they're, they seem like they're almost always on the bubble on one side of it or the other. And they're kind of the, uh, the fulcrum program, if you will, on uh, the Pac-12's postseason hopes. And, uh, you know, perhaps a class like this, uh, you know, still there are several Pac-12 teams ahead of them. So they're still kind of in that, in that middle ground, but with a particularly talented recruiting class, you wonder if perhaps, um, you know, Washington, it's, it's another step forward for a Washington program that, Maybe if you're not, and I've been guilty of this, maybe if you're not 
paying close enough attention, you may not have noticed how consistent they've been compared to where they were before Lindsay Meggs arrived. I know I haven't really necessarily appreciated beyond just getting to the College World Series in 2018, how consistent Washington has been. And sure, they've had postseason misses while, he, while he's been there, but they're certainly a lot more consistent now and competing at a much higher level in the Pac-12 than they were before. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And having a recruiting class in roughly here, the top 30, is I think another step in that direction for them. Yeah, so one thing I would say about all of these classes is that in a normal draft year, um, all of them would have been ranked. Now, if, if this is what they had produced. Now, you know, in a normal draft year, maybe Washington loses some of the, the guys that, that, you know, ultimately make it to campus. But if, if those classes had arrived in a year where there was a, a 40 round draft or probably even a 20 round draft, um, the, those classes would be ranked. Cracking the rankings this year was especially difficult. You could bring in Washington, I believe, has three BA 500 recruits. I have never not ranked a class with three BA 500 recruits in it. Um, but I did this here because, like, welcome, welcome to, to a five-round draft. And, you know, so there, there just were a lot of teams that, that had three, four, five, six that, you know, typically we're looking at, you know, if you, if you bring in three in a normal year, like, you're looking at probably being a top 15 class. Uh, provided that you're not bringing in three players ranked like 460 to 500. But, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's just a different world uh, this year in terms of these rankings. I think I really like that Washington class. I, I, I think it could be, be special. They have been in the top 25 under Megs, uh, and those classes are what propelled them to the World Series. So, you know, if, if this year... Uh, if they if they can follow that um, up with a, a, another one, I, I think that they're setting themselves up really well to uh, to take that step forward. Um, UCLA not being ranked is kind of shocking, but it's a small class. It lost its four best recruits, um, and one of its remaining top recruits also plays football. Uh, that's Jonathan Vaughns. I. You know, like I mentioned with uh, Nate McCollum at Georgia Tech, you know, it's there, there's uncertainty there just about like he's going to play both sports. But if you're really good at football, what does that ultimately mean uh, on the on the diamond? Um, maybe I'll look dumb for UCLA not being in the top 25 in four years. It would not surprise me at all. Um, John Savage doesn't recruit bad players. It's just a, a case where they, they kind of got squeezed a bit. But I mean, Max Dragic leading that class and that's a that's a really nice guy to have coming into the program and uh surprise surprise ucla gets a another premium arm virginia uh like i think you hit the nail on the head there joe like if you look at it they got savino on campus here early bits go reclassified um ultimately gets picked to get one of savino and bits like i think is a, a major win for them i think they'll take it they get Kyle Teal in this class, big time catcher who was a top 100 prospect before he pulled his name out of the draft. I think Virginia's going to take this class and be very happy about it. Again, in a different year, they're probably in there. Uh, this year just kind of gets squeezed out, but it's a kind of a smaller group. They already have who was supposed to be the best player in this group on campus. 
they'll they'll take it and be happy with it. I I would very much expect. And uh, Alabama, you know, it's uh, it's a situation where I think that you know some schools, some programs kind of cycle things, and this was supposed to be a cycle down year for for Alabama recruiting. Uh, it winds up that they got a really good class be, again because of that shorter draft, uh, but you know, they didn't have some of the elite talent that they brought in, but at the same time, you know, we didn't have kind of prelip ranked in the 500 last year. Um, and, you know, we all saw what he did this year. And by this time last year, I was well aware that we had missed on Connor prelip. Um, I'm not sure that Alabama has a player like that, like not to expect anything like that, but I wouldn't be surprised if Alabama has some hidden gems that, um, the rest of the uh, the the baseball community uh, they just flew under the radar for. That's how Brad Bohannon operates. So you know if uh, if this Alabama class ends up being a little bit better than than what we're projecting it to be right here, uh, again, not I'm not going to be surprised by it. But I think the bigger Alabama classes are in campus already, and this is just going. To, this is going to, to serve to assist them to move up, but the the uh, the biggest reasons why Alabama's taking steps forward uh, towards SEC competitiveness and, and regionals and and all the rest of that they're on campus already. Yeah, I think um, the recruiting rankings are I think are a good way for for our readers to kind of it's another tent pole. You know, we've done a couple of top 25 rankings and talked about the player movement and we talked about it vis-a-vis the draft. And now we're looking at recruiting rankings. And I think it for, for readers uh, who, who really want to dive into college baseball, I think this is a good opportunity. The recruiting rankings are to kind of really start to get excited for next season because, you know, there is some, you know, it, it, you, especially this year, you don't want to count any chickens, but there is positive movement with, you know, they're thinking about things like, you know, there's been all kinds of reporting about basketball getting played, you know, whether it's in a bubble or otherwise. And, uh, you know, football is firming up plans. And, um, you know, I think, like we said before, the baseball season is going to look different than it ever really has. So we still need to be prepared for that. But I think there's just been some, some positive movement about, like, uh, you know, what we can expect, I think. So I think this is a good way to really allow yourself to start to truly get excited as we get into the fall. Now and we start to have some of these tent poles of what we're used to. I mean, we had a little summer ball, but now we recruiting rankings are out. Teams are going to start fall practice in some form or fashion in most places. And then uh, hopefully before too much longer, we'll have some idea of what we're actually going to see on the field. So I just, um, I think this is, like I said, a good opportunity for readers to really start to, to dive in on 2021 in earnest, look at the, top 25 team rankings we've put out kind of combine them with these recruiting rankings and you can start to make some pretty educated guesses about what we're going to be looking at come February of next year. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, like I said, I love putting these together. I I love getting excited about it. Everyone loves their recruiting class this time of year. Maybe not quite everyone. Some people still be a little bitter that, you know, someone signed out of the draft that they weren't expecting, at least in a normal year. This year, everyone had plenty of time to get ready for, uh, you know, the the shorter draft. But uh, it's, uh, you know, it's it's like spring training, you know, how there's plenty of hope. And, you know, as as these players go out and start their college careers, uh, there's nothing but hope. There's nothing but promise. There's nothing but upside. And, uh, you know, so feel free to get excited about the, these players, what, what they can be over the next three or four years. Like I, that's, 
that's what it's here for. And, uh, you know, I, I think everyone needs that right now. Um, you know, in terms of college baseball, it's, it's been a long time since you've really had something to, to truly get wholesale excited for. I, I think you can sell out and, and just get excited for these players and, um, you know, just get excited to, to watch what, what they have, uh, you know, over, over the next several years as, as they play out their college careers. I know that, you know, when you look at it and uh, you see Kevin Parada or Carson Montgomery, the, those are the two highest rated players to, to make it to campus. Montgomery's going to Florida State. He's a right-hander. You know, seeing those two guys go at it, like that's going to be really exciting. You know, I mentioned Chase Davis, how much I wanted to see him. And um, think about a guy like Dylan Cruz going to to LSU, uh, you know, continuing the, this pipeline of great outfielders that LSU seems to have, um, you know, a, a kind of ready-made replacement for Daniel Cabrera, who, who went into the draft this year. You know, I – it's uh, I love this and you know, it's, it, it really has become one of my, my favorite parts of the, the off season is to, to dig into to recruiting classes. And so hopefully you guys uh, enjoy that as well. Uh, there's plenty to read online right now uh, with regards to it. You can dive into the, each of these classes individually. Like I mentioned the next, uh, you know, the, the, the teams that just missed, that'll be a top, you know, 10 teams, the, the, the next 10 teams. Uh, we'll have that online uh, next week. And then over the, I don't know how many weeks to come, but several, um, you know, we'll go conference by conference again. I did that for the first time last year, uh, you know, taking each team within uh, the, the major conferences at least. And I intend to do it for more conferences this year now that I've have a year under my belt and well this this year's a little strange anyway got got a little more time to do this maybe um you know we'll uh we'll, we'll dig into to a lot of those those conferences and, and and what every team in those conferences you know has coming in so again i really like doing this stuff hopefully you guys like reading it because there's going to be a lot of it to read uh on the website for, for the next few weeks All right, so that is going to do it this week for us here on the Baseball America College Podcast. In addition to reading everything over at BaseballAmerica.com related to recruiting, uh, we have other things. If your recruiting is not your bag, although you've made it this far in this episode, my guess is uh, recruiting is some something of your bag. Um, Joe has his conference stock watches continuing. Those are those are coming to a close, but they're they're. Still have a few more, uh, and you can check out all of the pro coverage. Um, you know, see who your favorite team just acquired or traded away. Um, you know, I mentioned the, the trade deadline passed on Monday, so check all of that out over at baseballamerica.com. You can follow Joe and me on Twitter. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. I am at Ted Cahill. You can follow us, uh, or you can subscribe to this podcast. Excuse me, wherever. You can find your podcasts. We greatly appreciate that. iTunes, Apple Podcasts. Now I'm, I'm out of it here. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts, uh, you can subscribe or follow and leave a rating or a review if you can do so. We greatly appreciate those as well. We'll be back here next week with another edition of the Baseball America College Podcast presented by Rapsodo. Remember, you can check out that national database at rapsodo.com slash national database. Also want to thank, uh, thank you guys for listening. 
We'll be back here next week. We'll talk to you then. I've been Teddy Cahill. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.